This is the Macmillan Library Podcast, a community conversation maker, bringing you curated conversations with Macmillan librarians, community members, authors, musicians, artists, and more. Welcome back. Today we have Jackie Caratini on to discuss her food preservation series here at the library. If you missed her first one about jams and jellies, we discussed the subject in this podcast. Her next class is on pickling July 11th at 6 p.m. We are currently in full summer reading and programming mode. If you haven't already signed up for the summer reading program, head over to the homepage to sign up at macmillanlibrary.org. There are so many amazing prizes to win for any age group. If you read it all, it's worth your time to sign up for a free chance at these prizes. We have many of the prizes displayed on the second floor if you'd like to see them. And now, Jackie. Today we have Jackie Caratini from the UW Extension with us. Could you introduce yourself? Sure. Um, my name is Jackie. I'm the family living agent with the UW Extension office. And this is my fifth month. Um, I started in Wood County um, in January. And I've been with Extension 18 years. Previous to that, I was in Marathon County for the last 10. Awesome. Were you doing the same same? Uh, I was, yeah. So teaching, yeah. yeah so pretty much, um, I was a family living agent there as well. Um, and in the last about year and a half, I was doing multi county. So I was also in Lincoln County doing similar things. So I'm a um, tenured uh, department member in the Department of Family Development. So similar roles. Great. And tonight you're giving your first um, talk of a series and today is going to be uh food intro to food preservations jams and jellies um this podcast will come out after that but i'm going to try to record it so it should be available for you to find and i'll post that in the show note links uh could you tell us a little bit about what made you want to do this series and a little bit about of what's what's coming up sure um, the whole idea of food preservation has become more and more popular in the last um, couple of years. I think we went through um, several generations where food preservation wasn't very, uh, you know, it wasn't the in thing. So most people were um, freezing. That was the thing to do. Um, and so we have about uh, two, three generations that don't know how to can. They don't know how to um, do a lot of the basic food preservation because their parents and their grandparents didn't teach them. And now for several reasons, one for um, maybe uh, health reasons, because I want to um, be more health conscious. I want maybe want low sodium or I want lower sugar in the amounts of my food. Um, they want to preserve their own food. Maybe they want to do the whole buy local, grow local. If I grow my own produce, then I know what's going into it. So that's spurred the increase of people wanting to um, can and preserve their own produce. Uh, people are, you know, frequenting farmers markets um, and, you know, just gardens so much more. So that's part of the increase. And then I think the other third part is just, you know, people are trying to reduce their energy footprint. So they just don't want to freeze. So whereas for many generations, that whole idea of, yes, it's much more convenient to freeze. Now people are thinking, 
that whole, you know, idea of, oh, we have two, three freezers in our house. They just don't have that anymore because people just don't want to use as much energy and they're really trying to reduce that energy consumption. So then comes in, how do we have shelf-stable products throughout the winter? So Wisconsin, we have this very short growing period and we have just, you know, an abundant amount of fruits and vegetables that... And and we'll get meats too towards the end of the year. We'll talk about that. Yeah, I'm but interested yeah, in that. so we have that one too. But we have all these different things, you know, are great products in Wisconsin. But it takes, you know, how do we preserve them to last throughout the, you know, the whole year? So that's where this kind of comes into play. I think the other piece that's of most interest for me is the fact that we live in this day and age of technology. And everyone has technology at their fingertips, except that's really scary when it comes to food safety and food preservation, because a lot of the information that they're getting is not research-based. So you can hop on the internet and you can hop on Pinterest and you can pull up directions, but it's not safe directions and it's not proper directions. And so, you know, the thing is with canning and food preservation, it's different than any other type of cooking. Whereas, you know, if you're going to go bake a cake or you are going to make a stir fry tonight, you can go, oh yeah, here's this recipe, but you know what? I really don't like bell peppers and I don't like onions. So I'm going to substitute, you know, squash and put in extra mushrooms and it's not going to change the stir fry at all. It's still going to be a great stir fry. You can't do that in canning. Those recipes were actually designed in a lab <laughs> and they were designed to give you a pH so that you get a shelf-stable product. You can't change mm. the recipe. Um, and so it really has to be done, you know, very succinctly and down to a T. And so you can't go a little of this or a little of that. It's different. That's what makes it different from any other type of cooking or baking or anything else in the kitchen. So, you know, it really is scary when somebody just says, oh, I'm going to make a YouTube video and throw it out or somebody throws something out on Pinterest. And it's like, oh, that's not really where you need to learn how to can. <laughs> because you're feeding your family and you want it to be safe. And, we, you know, we think, oh, things like botulism don't exist anymore or, you know, foodborne illness. And what was just in the news this past week, large outbreak of, you know, foodborne illness. It does exist. It's all over the place. So we do need to be very conscious of that. And we need to make sure that our information is coming from resource-based, resource-based, research, I can't talk today, <laughs> research-based resources, tongue twister, and that it's, you know, really good information. So it's really yeah, important. I was going to ask about... Um, cause I've done other food, some other food preservation. I haven't done canning yet. Um, I did read a book by John Steinbeck called East of Eden, where a lot of people got sick from botulism. Yeah. And that made me wonder, hmm, okay, if I can something, how am I going to prevent it from getting bad? And I've seen lots of cans done by other people or just like passing through somewhere that looked a little sketchy. And I'm like, I don't know if I would eat that. Yeah. So that's a really great point. So that's why we really talk about, you know, starting off with a research-based recipe, um, making sure that you're following instructions, using good materials. And so if you come to any of the programs throughout the whole summer that I have, that's exactly, we talk, walk you through step by step. And so if you do follow those and you follow those you know, directly, you will end up with a safe product. Um, and so, yeah, there's chances that something can go wrong. But most of the time, if you were following, you know, those research-based recipes step by step, you end up with a safe product. And that's that's what we're here for. That's, you know, that's why you're doing it. So 
Yeah, and having you here and available in Wood County is a great resource. Because I remember when I did, I learned how to do uh, fermentation. And it's like you said, there's a lot of specific steps that you need to follow. It takes a long time. You can't just go into it. There's a lot of research and planning and equipment. And then all of a sudden, it looks a little weird. Yeah. Is this okay? Is this normal? But I don't yeah. have anyone to ask, so I might just taste it. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it gets and a that's, little, a, that's yeah. a scary one. And that's actually <laughs> one of our topics for the fall. We'll be talking about that in September, fermentation. And that's actually one of those. You know, and we'll say... I'll say, you know, okay, so it's it's going to get slimy and it's going to turn pink. Don't throw it away. That's a part of the process. You yeah. know, that's good. That's good mold. But if it turns colors and it, you know, and it turns actually gets fuzzy mold, that's bad mold. And people are like, what? And I'm like, well, just yeah. come. You know, we'll walk <laughs> you through that. You know, it it is going to, it has to ferment. It, it is molding. That's what it's doing. But it's, there's a difference between good mold and bad mold. And we'll walk you through the process and what to look out for. And, you know, I'm. Um, when I first started doing these, um, oh, probably 10 plus years ago, we actually used to do them hands-on and we actually walked people, th- we had them actually canning. Um, and it got to the point where it was just a little overwhelming for people. Um, and so now when we do them, I try to make them as hands-on as possible. So I bring all the materials, I bring the canners, I bring the jars, I bring finished products and I walk you through. And so there's a combination of, you know, slides with pictures. And then I actually, you know, if I'm talking about a canner and I say, fill your, you know, fill it to here with water. I walk around and I say, here's the, fill it to here with water. Yeah, um, it's helpful so, to get that yeah, so, physical item. Yeah, so not short of actually you doing it, I'm still showing you all of the things and I'm holding it up in front of you and so you can actually see it. And so it's about as close as you can actually get to doing it without doing it. So it's not as overwhelming. We found that the in-person class became a little overwhelming for people and they weren't retaining things because they were so, they were, you know, so frenzy trying to, you know, hang on to stuff. So this actually works a little bit better. So, you know, I bring the stuff, you actually can see it, you can, you know, hold on to it, you can look at it, you can make notes, but you're still listening and paying attention. So it works really nicely. So um, we usually start off in the spring, May, June with kind of intro. June is jams and jellies. July is we talk about pickling. So we'll do not just, and a lot of people think, oh, pickles, not just pickles. We'll talk about dilly beans. We'll talk about how to pickle any kind of you know product and what the definition of pickling is and how pickling actually does your preserving. And that's the actual type of food preservation is pickling and how that actually is defined. Um, and then August is tomato start and tasty. So we'll talk about tomatoes and salsa and all your different tomato products and what goes into that. And again, how that's a, its own little subset and how that differs from other your other types of canning. Um, and then August, um, again, is uh, fermentation and not sure if we're doing apples. I'm doing these also. Here's the other piece. This is not only in Rapids. We're also doing at this Nakusa library as well. So if you miss Rapids, you can pick it up in Nakusa. Um, and then in October is our most popular um, canning meat, venison, and wild game. Um, so that usually is quite popular with the gentlemen, um, and especially in the last couple of years, again, because everybody's freezers are full and uh, they're looking for an alternative. And canned meat sounds gross. It's just one of those things that sounds like, oh, canned meat. Um, but if you've never had it, it's fantastic. It's um, just a very, very tender. It takes a kind of a gamey piece of meat and turns it into almost like a beef stew and it just literally falls apart. 
Um, so it's just a very, very tender piece of meat that just falls apart. So it's amazing. Um, yes. Yeah, I've only had frozen venison from oh, the freezer my whole life. No, 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 no. Yeah. Never so, seen canned venison. No. So it's like I said, it's not the most appealing thing. It doesn't sound appealing. It doesn't look appealing. Um, <laughs> well, because, you know, any kind of meat with the congealed fat on it on the top, it just mm, kind of has yeah. that look. Um, but it it's just amazing. It's one of those things. And um, when I do talk with folks, as with any type of food, you know, I say, what about, you know, your childhood or what do you remember? And they'll bring up, you know, my grandma used to do this. And anytime anyone was exposed to, you know, um, canned venison or beef or anything as a child, they'll go, oh, yeah, my grandma made canned meat. And like, oh, it was so good. Um, so if they were, if they did have it and they tried it, they still have this just great memory of it. So it's it's kind of a cool thing. But yeah, so that's a really popular one that we have in the fall. So that kind of rounds out the whole season. And um, like I said, most of them, we, they kind of overlap because we talk about different things throughout. So even in the intro and the jams and jellies, I still bring up tomatoes and we talk about some things because they kind of all overlap throughout. So if you can only come to one and you have questions, so if you only come to the jams and jellies and you have questions about tomatoes, I'll answer your question. That's okay. But um, yeah, it just kind of... They run through the whole season. Yeah, is the is the salsa canning the same with the the recipes, or can because I, I never make a salsa the same. I just throw in whatever I have. Ah, is that a and do you freeze it? Uh, no, I usually just make the batch to eat like In a fresh. gigantic bowl. So that's a, that's a, that's a great point. So there are two distinct different things. So fresh salsa is different than canned salsa and fresh salsa cannot be canned, um, oh. but fresh salsa can be frozen. So, okay. um, a lot of people that are exposed to fresh salsa, um, don't, particularly like canned salsa. Um, What's because, the difference? Well, because um, the canned salsa has to be um, figured out so that you get that pH so that it's shelf stable. Um, and because it's cooked, it has a tendency to be watery um, mm. and a little, um, it's not as thick and just has a different texture. But you can take those same ingredients from your fresh salsa and you can throw them in the freezer and you can you don't have to worry about your pH then. And then you can pull it out. It does, again, texture changes in the freezer because that um, tomato is, you know, over 90% water, probably closer to 98% water. So when it thaws, it loses some of its structure. Um, so it does get a little bit softer, but it still retains more than it would if you cooked it. Um, but, you know, you can try to find a cooked recipe that's similar with the ingredients, but most of the time it's not going to, even if we had the same ingredients, it's not going to come out the same because it's cooked and processed um, as if was if, if it was fresh. What are some of your favorite items to preserve, like something that you do? So we are mad tomato people. So um, I'm allergic to um, bell peppers. It's kind of a oh, strange no. food allergy. Yeah. <laughs> Does that include hot peppers or just no? Bell? So I can just eat. Bell. I okay. can eat jalapenos. That's good. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I can do salsas. Um, just not uh, bell peppers. So we do tomatoes. So we can do um, all of our own spaghetti sauces and different things. So just straight up tomatoes, and we do massive amounts of straight up tomatoes. So we do lots and lots of just straight up tomatoes. And so that's one of the things for many many years that. 
It's one of the things I grew up on. It's one of the things that we still do. Um, and I am blessed, and I tell my children that they're blessed um, because I grew up in a generational garden. Um, and what I mean by that is um, my dad always had a garden at his house. But when I was a small child, my grandma was the one who came and did all the gardening. Um, and then we were the ones who um, uh, – cared for it. And, you know, she tended it, she planted it, she tended it, and then we harvested and then we took care of it. And then now the same thing is happening. So now um, my dad will plant and tend, um, and then we um, take care of it. And then in the end, we all, as a family, everybody gets together and then everybody cans and then everybody splits it back out. So it's, you know, like three, four families, multi-generational, and that's just kind of how it's always gone on. And it works really slick that way because if you are putting up, you know, anywhere from, you know, 50 to 100 quarts of tomatoes. Um, it's a lot, um, yes. and it takes a lot of time. Um, or, you know, same thing, just because in the summer, families are busy, and they're all around, and, you know, not everybody's there all the time. Um, so I just, it's a great concept, and I really like it, because then nothing goes to waste. Um, so someone's always there, and someone else can step in and grab something and take care of it if someone else is not around. So Yeah, that's helpful. My wife yeah. had a large, large garden last year and it got to be incredibly difficult to harvest everything especially the kale just kept exploding oh, yes. everywhere there was just no not enough uses for kale yeah but it'd be... did you make kale chips in the dehydrator uh i think she may have we have did made she, kale chips did she before. do them in the oven though or the dehydrator? No, dehydrator did you do them in the dehydrator yeah because they're fantastic in the dehydrator yeah kale chips are delicious do you do like uh, different seasonings and flavors i'm not i haven't made them Oh. I don't know what uh, her recipe was for that. So we do we do them in the dehydrator, and the kids will get to pick different flavor for each rack, you know, because mm -hmm. we do the, we do multi racks, so we'll have like ten racks, and I'll let them each do a different one. So we'll do like salt and vinegar. So they'll do like salt and vinegar on one, and then we'll do you know um, just regular in each one. We'll do like a garlic on one, and so each one so they taste like different potato chips. So the kids think that they're potato chips, but they're really kale chips. So it's really fun. And then each rack is a different flavor. Yeah. yeah. And I like them in the dehydrator because um, they come out just consistent. Whereas for many years when I did them in the oven, I felt like some burnt and some didn't. And it was really hard to get them consistent. And in the dehydrator, they all come out exactly the same. And they just keep that bright green, beautiful color and they're crisp in their shape and i felt like in the oven some would disintegrate and some were still oily and mushy and they just weren't consistent they were just so hard to do but the dehydrator rocks yeah i think really we nice. have done some in the oven and yeah it's it's a it's mixed not, bag. Yeah, it is. That's exactly what happens. Like some on the edge are like so like done that you can touch them to pull them off and they go and they Dumped. disintegrate. And then ones in the center are like so soft that they're still like not cooked and raw. So... Yeah. Do you ever do Fantastic. any sauerkraut or anything? Yes. So we've done sauerkraut over the years. Um, have not just in the last couple, but um, it's usually a class that I've done for the last couple of years. Fantastic. Yeah, that's fun. Really good. It got, is. I don't know if this, I have the equipment still. I did have it, but you need those special like aerators. Yeah. I don't know if mine are intact from my move to here, but I want to get back into that. It's a, it's a process to do, though. Yeah. Um, I grew up uh, with um, my dad just doing it in the big crocs. 
Um, and so he would just do it with the plates and the crocs and just weigh it down. Um, and so we always just did it that way. Um, so just traditional weighing it down and just letting it book. ferment. It and sketchy. That's no, <laughs> I didn't that's, know. It's still I was recommended. Not <laughs> it's still safe, not sketchy. Okay. Um, still safe, recommended. Um, and you just let it go. And again, sounds sketchy. It does sound sketchy because the recommendation <laughs> is you lift it up, you scrape the scum off, and then yeah. you put it back on and you let it go. Um, and it does sound sketchy, doesn't it? But mm -hmm. that is the USDA uh, recommendation. Um, and it sounds terrible when huh. you say it out loud, but that <laughs> is. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? I'm with you. It does sound sketchy. But yeah, if we pulled the recipe off the USDA, that's exactly what it say would say. But yeah, no. Um, that was amazing. It is. <laughs> it's kind of fun. But no, yeah, so... Yeah, works so good. Is so good for you too. It is. The so the natural. I was going to say the natural microbes and works good for that gut flora. Yeah, I made some carrot dill garlic. I think it was <gasps> oh, so good. Oh, fun! And I still have some in my refrigerator. I don't know. I don't know. Do you know if it ever will go bad? I have a sauerkraut or a cabbage jalapeno, and it's basically like pure lava at this point, and it's sitting in the back of the refrigerator in a large mason jar. <laughs> So technically, they're not supposed to, but I think, I don't know, after a certain point, I would be a little scared myself, but it's yeah, one of those. <laughs> I don't want to throw it away, but I don't really want to eat it. So it kind of just sits there. It's your own, your own experiment. How, how long will it, what will it look like after yeah. a while? One I'll of those things. I'll just take a small sip and see how my stomach feels. Yeah. It's probably just going to be burning. <laughs> That's that's about it. You could take just a, like a, a just a dropper out at a time and see what happens. So, <laughs> very much so. Uh, what about uh, do you ever do any sourdoughs or like breads? Not in a long time. Um, many years ago, we did a lot with breads, and then we just haven't got into that. And it's funny that you say that because one of the um, actually in this series on the back of the evaluation, it's one of the things that we ask. Um, is what other things are you interested in? And so far, that's one of the things that has come out is um, how to do sourdoughs and getting back into homemade breads. And so that's one of the things that keeps coming up with people. Um, I was just on the radio earlier this week, and um, it was one of the conversations we were having is that I think we, again, I'm going to go back to this generation of um we have individuals that kind of skipped some of the basics and weren't taught things. And so we're kind of go, going back to basics with folks and they're trying to learn how to do just some of the things that they weren't taught. And so how do you get people to direct resources and where to find those? Um, and sometimes it's just pointing them to resources. So even like um, one of the things we'll talk about tonight is where to get to stuff. And so like I said earlier, you know, we don't recommend things like Pinterest, but like when it comes to canning, um, uh, Ball and Kerr have a fantastic website called freshpreserving.com and they have fantastic videos. So they're just great how-to videos um, and they'll walk you through step-by-step step, and they're just great. Um, so I think there are really good resources out there where you can find things, but it's just a matter of how do you get to them and how do you weed through as the Joe Schmo, you know, average public public, you know, how do I not know, especially I'll use, you know, canning venison. Um, I've talked with a lot of guys who, you know, if you Google it, the first thing that comes up is there's some, you know, Wisconsin hunting sites and there's a guy who does it and he's like, oh yeah, just take your, you know, meat and you know, pack it right in the jars and off you go. And 
you know, some parts of it is okay and some parts isn't. And there's other really great videos on how to do it, but it's not the one with the most hits that comes up first on your search engine, you know. So how do you know how to get to the right one? So that's part of this is just pointing people in the right direction to get them to the right resources so that you're, you know, how to look for it, you know. And that's similar to, you know, the libraries. It's like there's tons of resources, but how do we get people to the right stuff to get to the, you know, again, we're talking about food and we're talking about your safety. So we want to make sure that you're making the right choices and it's, you know, going to be safe for your whole family because you don't want to be the person that makes everybody sick, you know, and you mentioned botulism before, you know, and botulism is one of those things that um, it takes a, there's some, and you probably might've heard of this. There's um, some great stories and they're not stories. They're, they're true stories, but um, of a gentleman on the, West Coast that um, dipped his finger in. There's actually two, I know two different stories. Uh, one is a doctor on the West Coast and um, there was another one of a mom who she just dipped her finger in and just a teeny tip of her pinky and just to taste it. And both of them, one of them um, went into anaphylactic shock and ended up dying. And the other one, again, uh, they thought he had Alzheimer's and his whole system was shutting down. And it ended up just being from just, just a, tiny a teeny, teeny, tiny taste. Um, so it's one of those things where people think, oh, that's an old thing. It's not around anymore. And it's like... No, it is. And that's why, you know, we do say these things and we say, yep, you, I don't want you to be afraid and I don't want you to not do it. We just want you to follow instructions. So is there any way to tell besides tasting? Absolutely not. And we don't want you to taste it. So that's why we say just follow directions. So, yep. So botulism has no color, no smell. Um, it doesn't look like anything. So no. The only thing you would know is if in if it's a canned, not your home canned product, but in a canned product from the store, it might um, have a bulging. Um, you know, the can might bulge, or if it's something that you did can yourself, um, the top might pop off. Um, because it produces uh, gases, and so it will want to expand and explode. So that's why the cans will dent out. So botulism can sometimes dent out. Um, but other than that, no. It really, it's not something that you can see. It's not something that you can smell. Um, it's essentially invisible. Yikes. But yeah. I guess, yeah, when you mentioned this canned stuff from the store, we all pretty much buy cans all the time and open them up and use them and eat them and yeah. don't expect to get botulism yeah. and they're big giant factories that you'd think we as individuals paying really close attention following details would probably do a better job of preventing botulism than that giant factory with a thousand people so right because <laughs> you're gonna pay more too. that's exactly right so it's it's okay so but all good so who knows? excellent yeah, I'm glad all this stuff is coming back, coming back around. There's a bunch of stuff I didn't know, like with the sourdough, and that's just get yeast from the air, basically. Yeah. Wild yeast. It's crazy. Isn't it fun? Yeah, you get to learn I a think lot of cool stuff. I think it's all good. Um, you know, I think, and I think part of it is, is even people who have doing things for many, many years, I think there's other um, pieces that things... <clears throat> excuse me, things have changed. And so you need to make sure that they keep up with um, changes in research and how things have just, you know, adapted over the years. So for example, 
um, like with tomatoes. Uh, tomatoes in mid-80s were deemed not as acidic as they had been before. And so if you had a, um, let's say, ball blue book from the, you know, the 50s, it would not say that you needed to add acid back into your canned tomato products. Um, but now they do. Um, and so we recommend that you add acid like um, lemon juice back into your canned tomato products um, to make them more acidic. So that's one of those things that, yeah, if you had an old recipe, it wouldn't say that. Um, or, you know, tonight we're talking about jams and jellies. And, in you know, in jams and jellies, um, a lot of people, especially in the beginning, I said things like um, one of the reasons people are doing more canning is because they're more health conscious. So if you're more health conscious, you would want to um, maybe reduce the amount of sugar. Well, what is a jam or a jelly? Essentially, it's three products. It's pectin, it's the fruit, and it's sugar. And when I say sugar, I mean an average, you know, jelly recipe is seven cups of sugar. It's a wow. lot of sugar. Um, and so a lot of times people will say, well, I just want to, you know, cut that out. Well, you don't realize you can't just cut that out. Um, there are low sugar and no sugar jam recipes, um, but you have to correlate your pectin with your sugar and your fruit. So what I mean by that is um, there are now no sugar and low sugar pectins that go with your recipe. So you'd have to find a recipe that's for a, you know, a no sugar or a low sugar jam. And then you would, again, so if it's a low sugar it maybe would be two to three cups of sugar. You'd use a low sugar pectin and then your amount of fruit. If it's a no sugar recipe, you would use no sugar at all. You'd use a no sugar pectin and then your fruit. Um, what you can't do is you can't just take a regular sure gel that you've you know used for 20 years and just cut out the sugar all together and expect that it's going to set because it probably won't because that that sure gel, that pectin was designed to um, bond with sugar in the heat process to form a gel. And if that sugar is absent, it's not going to form a gel. So that sugar is an essential piece to the process. Um, and so again, there's absolutely nothing wrong with a low sugar or a no sugar um, jam or jelly recipe. We have tons of them. Ask me, give me a call. We'll get you any kind of recipe you want. But you got to make sure that you're starting off with, you know, the recipe that correlates with the pectin that you're looking for. So um, that's one of those things that you just have to ask. Um, a lot of times people will ask about honey. Can I use honey in my recipe? Um, you can use honey. We usually recommend half the amount of sugar be honey. Um, if you use all honey, it's probably not going to set. Um, so you can replace half amount, half the amount with honey, and then the other half you have to use some type of sugar again for those molecules to bond, and so that you get a good set. Um, sugar substitutes. Uh, most of the time we say go low sugar or no sugar. Um, you can use a sugar substitute, but I would just be careful because some of them, upon heating, turn to rocks. Um, they're just not designed for cooking. Mm. Yep. So some work, some don't. So just check your labels and know um, because some of them upon heating will crystallize and they'll turn to like okay, little, yeah. yeah, and you just don't want that. Jams, so, jellies. Yep. And what's the difference? With, oh, good question. So that's a great question. So um, that's usually one of the things we start off with. So um, a jam is usually just really um, a thick amount of your um, fruit, your sugar, and it's just chunky and thick. 
um, then a jelly is not the actual um, fruit. It's just the juice. So it's juice and then it's clear. So it's a clear consistency. So oh, if I held no. my jelly up to no. the light, so I actually judge fairs. And so if we <laughs> were going to be judging this at a fair, I would hold that jelly up to the light and I should actually be able to see right through it. It should be a really nice, clear consistency. That's a good jelly. Um, and so jelly is actually made with the juice, not with the actual fruit. Um, so you would uh, take your fruit and you would juice it out and you would get the juice and then that's what you would make your jelly from. Jam has the fruit chunks in it and the jelly is made from the juice. So that's the difference between the what jam and the, the jelly. What are the other criteria to winning this best so, jelly? Ah, so it ha should have a nice um, thickness. So it shouldn't be too thick. So if it's so thick that it doesn't have movement, then that's not good. You don't want it to be like rubber. Um, so sometimes... Um, if we give it a good shake, it should have some movement. It should be able to move. Um, but you don't, so one, you don't want it to be rubber. So it shouldn't be solid and not have movement, but it shouldn't be liquid. So it shouldn't also be just total liquid. So um, it should be solid when you pick it up. But if I give it a good shake, it should have a little bit of movement and move up the side and kind of grab the sides a little, but still stay solid and, and still hold that gel form. Um, but yeah, that's usually what I'm looking for. Again, you should be able to, with a jelly, you're look, holding it up to the light. It should be clear. There shouldn't be any chunks or cloudiness in it. Um, if uh, apple jelly is a pretty common one, a lot of people like to make apple jelly from their apple juice. or the, um, And if they don't, um, when they're making it and they're processing it, especially if they did their own apple juice, if they didn't get all the sediment out of it, then it might come out cloudy um, and it's not clear. So then that it's not as doesn't come out as high. Um, so you have to make sure that you're using like a cheesecloth and you're getting all your sediment out so that when you're sifting your juice so that you get a really nice um, color jelly so that it's almost shiny so it glistens when you hold it up to the light. So, so. what's the best jelly that you've tasted then? Oh, there's a lot of them. <laughs> um, Is there any that are available to buy that you find that are oh, among the best or just individual I people I was going to say, I don't normally buy jelly. Yeah. So it's one of those things that we make. Um, but you bring up a really good point. Um, uh, right now, um, this past year, uh, Ball, so I mentioned the freshpreserving.com has some really fun, kind of creative new jam and jelly recipes out there. Um, uh, just kind of funky ones. So if you're interested in trying something different other than the traditional, you know, strawberry jam that, you know, you make or grape or, you know, you want to try something fun, um, the Fresh Preserving has some funky ones. So um, I just have some listed. So like uh, carrot cake jam, um, champagne blush jelly, uh, fresh herb jelly, ginger pear, uh, kiwi daiquiri jam, mm. um, uh, mom's apple pie in a jar, orange chili marmalade. Wow. Yeah. Strawberry lemon marmalade and strawberry margarita preserves. Um, and there's tons more. So Ooh, yeah. That's another question. What pro does preserves mean? So, okay. So that's great. So that's great. Okay. So let's go back through. So jam again is that fruit sugar and it's really thick because it's yep. a chunky fruit. So then a butter is when we take that same 
um, same mixture and then you keep cooking it down um, and you keep stirring it and you cook it slowly and then um, it uh, dissolves and it ends up into a butter. So it's the same um, ingredients that are in the jam, but it's cooked down into a smooth consistency um, and that turns into a butter. A preserve, on the other hand, is it's a jelly, but then it has chunks uh, floating in it. Um, and so preserves has chunks suspended in the jelly. Mm. Okay. So, so like little pieces of fruit mummified in the jelly yes, they're preserved. Yes. Okay. So they would be preserved and they're just kind of suspended in that jelly. And so they're just kind of sitting in there. A conserve, on the other hand, a conserve um, has things like nuts um, or uh, chunks of fruit um, mixed in. And those are uh, mixed in with that fresh fruit. Um, and so they're suspended in there. They're not as popular in the I've U.S., but if you travel in Europe, they're very, very popular. So that's one of the things. Um, if you have like a European breakfast and they do cheese and breads and they'll give you conserve um, to spread on your breads, um, that's just a very kind of popular thing. But that brings up a really good point that you have to have a recipe to start off with that because one of the things that changes your pH is adding things to your recipe. So you can't take a jam or jelly recipe and just decide, oh, I'm going to throw some pecans in there um, or I'm going to add carrots to it. You can't do that. So, but if you start off with a conserve recipe, then that was designed that way for that pH for it to be stable. So, and then a marmalade is when you um, start off with that um, recipe. So it's similar to like a jelly, but it has um, peel. So grated like orange peel or zest mm. in it. Um, so that marmalade has that peel in there. Um, and then the last one, like I said, is the jelly and the jelly is um, made from the juice. And so that that's clear. So that has no, no pulp, no fruit. It's just straight jelly. If you're, if you hate recipes and you're always a person who's just throwing things into the bowl, is there any way to measure the pH? Like if you try to make your own from different recipes, like how do, how do they come up with the recipes that work? So most of these were all done in labs. And so most of them were all done like our, our, you, our recipes um, that are from um, uh, our extension recipes and all the ones from the USTA were all done like ours were done at UW-Madison um, in the lab at UW-Madison. Wow. Yeah. I would have never thought that jam and jelly recipes were constructed yeah. in labs. Yeah. Yeah. So they're all, they're all done. In, um, and so, yeah. No. So the answer is no. <laughs> you can't it. test it. You can't. No. Um, yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And along with just regular canning, jams and jellies, the same thing. They can develop Absolutely. botulism in a jelly. If At more so than crazy. anything else. Absolutely. Yeah. More um, so. So okay. um, especially with other fruits and vegetables, because um, anytime something is exposed to the dirt or the ground, that's where botulism spores are. So botulism spores are very common. If you walked outside and just you know, picked up any average, you know, um, square, one foot by one foot of the grass, there's, and you tested it, there's going to be botulism spores in it. They're just naturally occurring out in the ground. They're just natural. They're out there. But what they need to, um, 
actually grow as they need to be in an anaerobic condition. So which means they need to be sealed um, into a container with no air um, and closed off from the oxygen. And then they need to be heated to a certain (laughs) part, not to the point where they're actually um, uh, killed, but just heated enough. So that's where when we take something like um, uh, let's say a hot product um, like our tomatoes. So if we were canning our tomatoes and we heated our tomatoes on the stove um, enough just to heat the tomatoes and maybe peel the skins off and we put those hot tomatoes in the jar, but then we didn't actually process our jar. We just sealed them in there, put you know our lids on and then set them aside, which is what some people, that's their idea of canning. Um, and if there were botulism spores on those tomatoes, they now we've created this anaerobic condition. We sealed those spores in that jar. We sealed them in there with, um, and we heated it up enough that it's, you know, they're now growing and they can now just keep going and going and going and going. We gave them their ideal environment that they need to just flourish. Um, Whereas out in the air, they don't have that. They're not in an anaerobic condition. They're not heated to the point that they need. And so they don't cause any harm out in the normal environment. But you put them in a canning jar, seal them up, heat them up a little bit, but not enough to kill them. Um, So that's why we say everything needs to be processed. So everything, you know, if you're canning, it has to be processed. So if you had a recipe from your mom or grandma and they said, oh, you don't have to put it in a, you know, boiling water bath or you don't have to process in a canner, that's not necessary. That is wrong. That is absolutely wrong. Everything does need to be processed. Unless if you're doing like jams and jellies and you're making freezer jam, freezer jam is great. There's nothing wrong with freezer jam, but it goes in the freezer. So it's designed to not be shelf stable. It's designed to go in the freezer. So that's what's doing the preserving is the freezer. So then it goes in the freezer and that's the reason that we don't need to process it. So Okay. So if you want to get crazy and don't pay attention to anything, you just put it in the freezer. <laughs> exactly. And that's what I said with your salsa. So that fresh yeah. salsa works great. Just put it in your jars and put it in the freezer. And you said spores. So is botulism, is that a fungus? It then? is. So yeah. So they're called spores. Okay. So there's deadly, deadly spores everywhere. There are. <laughs> but when they're out in the when they're out in the canners. open, they are perfectly harmless and they are everywhere and they're there's nothing wrong with them. They're fine. Um, but when they again get sealed into an anaerobic condition and get that ideal temperature, then they start to germinate. One last question about that canning. <laughs> so tomatoes. Yeah. Um there are so many different kinds of tomatoes. We often grow heirloom tomatoes. Yeah. So is that, if a recipe just says, do they just say tomatoes? It does. And you can use so whatever kind you it want. It doesn't matter. No. Okay. And so that's the reason that we do recommend that you add acid back into your products because at different varieties, you know, like again, they researched many, many varieties and they found that, again, they just were not as acidic as they were, you know, that they used to be. Um, and I can't remember off the top of my head what the quote was, but again, it was over 50 varieties of tomatoes that they researched and they just were overall not as acidic as they had been before. Um, and so that's why just to be safe, if you add just a small amount of lemon juice back into the product, it just raises that pH a little bit enough. So um, makes them a little bit more acidic so that they're 
shelf stable. Um, are they still edible if you don't? Yeah, they are. Um, but we usually recommend that you eat them within a year. So if you're someone that, you know, we eat them right away, you're good to go. It's not like you're going to croak, you know, tomorrow if you didn't put lemon juice in them. They're fine. But if you are someone who, you know, has a pantry full of products and, you know, and you have shelf after shelf of, you know, tomato products, eh, I would, you know, make sure that you are make, putting that back in there because you don't know when you want to make sure that they're shelf stable because that's our whole ideal is to make sure that everything is shelf stable. Do you have a favorite variety of tomato just for taste? No, we usually do a whole different, a whole bunch. So, um, and then we have a whole different variety. I think that my favorite just, um, we just do a lot of different cherry tomatoes just for eating. Um, and so we don't can't necessarily can with those, but just to eat. And so those are generally our favorite. Um, and I think my favorite are, and I'm not even gonna get the technical name, but my kids call them the zebras. So they're a dark green and red. Um, oh, okay, yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? I think I've about? seen those. Oh my God, my they're fantastic. My whole family loves those they're kind fantastic. of tomatoes. I am not a fan. Oh, though. really? I so. like the big, huge heirloom ones, but yeah. for some reason, the small ones that explode in my mouth, oh, I don't like it yeah. as much. Yeah, so we really, the last couple of years, really, really like those um, deep green and kind of red. They're almost a deep green and purple color and... Yeah, I like the yeah. funky vegetables, like purple yeah. carrots, watermelon yeah. radishes, yeah. all the purple cabbage. It's Have fun. you done um, the uh, watermelon cucumbers? Um, I don't know. I don't think so. Just watermelon um, radish, I think. These are fun. They um, look like... Um, they look like teeny tiny little um, cucumbers. Uh, they're just small. But when you bite into them, um, they look like a cucumber, but they almost taste like a lemon. They have like a little zesty taste to them, and they kind of pop in your mouth. Those are fun. Hmm. And there's also lemon cucumbers that, um, again, look like a cucumber and have kind of a lemony taste to them. We've planted both of those before, too. Very fun. That sounds awesome. Yeah. So kind right. of fun, but... Well, thanks for coming in, and I can't wait to listen to some of these, and maybe we'll be able to do another podcast later on in the year after I learn some more and the season goes on and talk about some of the things that are coming up. Pulling other stuff. Sounds fun. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. We hope you use this information to strike up a local conversation. Check us out at macmillanlibrary.org to see upcoming events, including concerts, speakers, movies, and more. We also have free online classes through Gale Courses, as well as a host of databases for your research needs. If you can't find what you're looking for, stop in at the information desk. The Macmillan Conversation Maker podcast can be found at macmillanlibrary.org backslash podcast.